Hello and welcome to the NGBI podcast. This is Jim Wilson. If I've learned anything since starting down my life sciences path 10 years ago, it's that a surprisingly few number of people have the knowledge and experience necessary to assist companies that need lab space. Jay Levine at Dialogue Design was one of the first architects in Toronto to build a practice around the life sciences sector, and he has arguably forgotten as much as some of his peers think they know about lab space design. I had an opportunity to sit with Jay recently and hope you enjoy our conversation. Jay Levine, welcome. Thanks, Jim. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Before we discuss your professional career, I'd like to talk about who you are and where you come from. You were born and raised in Toronto, and you're an avid hockey player and fan. What position do you play, and how often do you play? Well, some would argue that it's my best position is rover. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but you say avid, I think that if you do something long enough, people think you're okay at it. It's like the practice of architecture. I still play and I enjoy it. Uh, my three sons would argue that my skills are less than perfect and pretty mediocre, but it's nice to still get out in my early 60s and still get out and have fun once a week. <laughs> That's what's important. I'd like to talk about your early years. Your mother was a teacher and artist and your father was also an architect. I'm guessing you come by your eye for detail, honestly, genetically. Could you tell us a bit about your parents and your upbringing? I also have a sister who's an interior designer. The apple certainly doesn't fall too far from the tree. Both my folks were creative people. I kind of early on got the sense that if you can think something, if you can dream it, you can draw it, you can make it. I love woodworking and making things and assembling things. I mean, even Ikea is still fun for me. You went to school at the University of Waterloo, where you received your Bachelor of Architecture in 1986. What do you remember about this time in your life back in your university days? And was university fun for you? Was it difficult? I came from this, relatively speaking, pragmatic background. Father's practice was on modest commercial buildings and some larger scale, what would now be sort of design, build, distribution centers and those sorts of things. In school, I was competing with much, much more creative people. And so I felt myself at odds. There's an old joke in architecture school that the A students always end up working for the C students later on in life. And I felt very much a C student at the time. That was just indication of slow maturation because over time I started to really enjoy my craft and get better at it slowly and bit by bit. Wouldn't feel that way now if I was back at school, but I think all of us, we could go back to school with how we feel and what we know now. It was also both competitive, but also everybody was trying to navigate and figure out who they were. It was like early adolescence all over again, except this time in the creative field. It was kind of interesting. Did you feel any pressure from your father to pursue the same path? In retrospect, I think that was the case. But I think at the time, I clearly remember being six years old and dad was building a family cottage and it was very modest. I remember standing on this platform in the trees and thinking, this is really cool. Like To make something like this is amazing. And that's what propelled me to go into this. I realized later in life that my dad was pretty interested in having me become an architect to take over his practice. I didn't feel that at the time, and I certainly didn't understand it. I'm going to guess that the tree fort your father built for you is probably better than the tree fort I built for my son. 
<laughs> now, this wasn't a street fort. This was our family's cottage. Oh. It was a standard late 60s back split with a clear story. We were standing on the platforms. Just the floors were there. And it was only 1,100 square feet in total. But that's all that was up. And it was elevated with the trees around it. And I just remember standing in there looking around thinking, wow, this is really neat. That's cool. You started in the industry and eventually ended up at NXL Architects. And the story of that journey is interesting. You and your team developed a particular focus at NXL. If you could, please walk us through what that focus is all about and how NXL morphed over the years. Architecture is one of those professions that has a wide array of project types and skill sets and so on. I joined my dad's practice out of school. Almost right away, we got a project for a pharmaceutical company. I just remember being really excited and challenged by the complexity of it. It was big. It was offices and warehouse, but it also was quality control labs and packaging plant, and it had solvent storage, and you had to figure out how to store this stuff with explosion vents. And, and I thought, this is kind of tough stuff. I also thought it would be a smart business move to focus or specialize in that stuff. My classmates and schoolmates back at Waterloo wouldn't have been interested in that. They wouldn't have seen that as creative or interesting. I thought, hey, this is a good thing to do. And it's also challenging enough to give somebody with ADD focus for long <laughs> enough to pay attention for a few minutes. That's what started it. And I just started then pursuing other pharmaceutical companies and opportunities eventually grew that practice with a partner, David Lozon, into NXL Architects, where we focused exclusively on two areas. One was industry, GMP, pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical manufacturing. And the other was straddling into the world of academia, science and lab buildings for institutions that would generally teach. There weren't too many firms that were able to straddle both. You were how old when you first started to get on this path? Early 30s. Ron Kienberg from Icoi Architects said to us, listen, architects only do 5% of the, the stuff that gets built in our society. Engineers do the other 95%. Roads, bridges. He said, head down that path. It's less crowded. In the end, he was right that, that this type of specialization isn't for everybody. And I wasn't creative enough to do art galleries and city halls. The path you've gone down is one that I'm now finding is incredibly interesting from my perspective on the commercial real estate side. I'd like to look more closely at your journey. One question that comes to mind is what's the biggest obstacle over the years that you've encountered and why did it matter? I clearly remember watching my kids play hockey, sitting next to some developers active in our local community, trying to convince them that labs and laboratory-type buildings were where it's at and good things to develop and build. Because I was seeing what was going on in the U.S. All the trade groups were down the U.S. So my window was down there. And there were lots and lots of big aspirational projects. And there wasn't anything being done here. What came back was just no interest. It's too risky. I've always found in Canada is a sense of can't do that. It's too risky. Let's wait for the government to initiate a project or we got to go see if we can get funding from the government to do this. I think that there's a big turning point, a kind of watershed where there is a great deal of intellectual interest 
in science and the impact it has on our lives. And people are starting to pay attention and build for it and embrace it when they used to see it as risk. Frankly, COVID taught a lot of real estate developers that their office tenants could leave and could work from home, but you can't do your science from home. You can't take your film code home for the weekend. Some of them are saying it's not risky. There are actually sticky tendencies. Once they've invested, they can't leave. You and your team had a very successful practice at NXL. And in 2021, you folded it into dialogue design. You had a great brand. Why did you make that decision? I made that decision because I felt that we had a lot more to contribute. And as the projects were getting larger in scale and larger in aspiration, big companies like to work with big companies. And we had a team of as big as 30, but usually hovered around 15 to 20 people. We weren't being seen as or considered for projects of any scale, anything 50, $100 million projects, $200 million projects. The only way we could attain those or be part of those was to joint venture with other firms. And every time we did, we ended up only or relegated to the sort of quote unquote technical side, the content. And we were not involved in the container, in the shaping of the building and the architecture of the building. When the opportunity came up, pretty funny story about how that happened. They said, we've decided not to follow up on this person, but are you interested? And I said, in what? And they said, in joining dialogue. And I kind of stopped and sat down for about a minute and said, yeah. I realized at that moment that every day of the week we were hitting a glass ceiling that we couldn't knock through and we're never going to at the scale that we were. Well, as you say, elephants like to herd with elephants and antelope herd with antelope. As you've entered this next chapter of your career, I wonder if how you have defined success has changed now that you're at a larger firm. Coming to this larger firm was a real acknowledgement of the body of work that we had, which was meaningful to me. And I realized, you know what? We had been successful. You're chasing, you're only thinking about the chase, but to look back at it and say, you know what, we had a body of work that was meaningful and give us a good reputation. That was sobering and made me realize that the success actually is in the doing, not the achieving or the getting. In the year that we've been here at Dialogue, we're doing stuff that's bigger, but it's also a lot more fun to be in early 60s and having fun again. To me, that's successful. My family sees it and feels it. Our clients see it and feel it. And our team here does as well. I echo that having gone through my journey and being where I am and having more fun now than I've had in my career is so refreshing. Isn't it great? To get that opportunity is, it's like a second life. What has been your biggest win over the years and what did it teach you? There were two. One's in the institutional world and one's in the world of industry. The biggest win in industry, I saw a little 16th of a page in the Globe and Mail at the time saying that this company called Hemasol had just been awarded some seed capital. I called them up out of nowhere and I said, you've just received this money. How much of it do you plan on spending on buildings and can I talk to you? 
I set up a meeting with them. Literally, the meeting was standing in their front vestibule. And that turned into a relationship that grew to build a $120 million biopharmaceutical manufacturing plant that was fascinating and one of our crowning achievements. It was a very small win to begin with, but it grew over time. I'm actually in this room, I'm looking at a picture of the project. We were competing for a project at York University, and we're competing against some very big branding firms. And it was for a reuse of that hockey arena into research labs. And all the other firms were presenting ideas about how to clad it. And I went in there with sketches and I said, leave the brick, leave it alone, build it from the inside. Don't spend the money there, spend the money on the inside. And we got the job. It's actually one of my favorite projects. And it led to three other great projects on that campus. We really had a big hand in building that science component of, of York. So those are two big wins, but they didn't start out big. They grew. Those are two great stories. We all make choices in life that steer us to where we are at this moment. You've got a, an enviable reputation in the field. It proceeds before you get to the room, and I've seen it myself. Can you think back to two or three things that have helped make the Jay Levine in the industry who he is? I would say either why not or how come we can't. We had a mandate to renovate a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant that had to stay in operation. And we said, well, why can't we just build up and over it and leave everything inside? And that's what we did. We built a 30,000 square foot penthouse for all the new equipment and built it all completely outside of the existing building and then went inside and fed the services down. We did a project at Carlton, and we said, well, why do we have to put all the equipment for the building in a penthouse feeding down and cutting up every floor like Swiss cheese? Why can't we take that same equipment and put it on the side and feed it horizontally? I think it's just been the willingness to risk. Maybe it has to do with growing up five feet tall and realizing growing a thick enough skin that it doesn't matter what people say. If you don't try, you'll never succeed. Similarly, never give up. I'm kind of tenacious. That offends some. To others, it's terrific. Different clients feel differently about that, but I can't give up on something. It's a bad idea. We'll figure that out and we'll move on to the next one. Being flexible and passionate is part of the package. What's the favorite part of your job? I love the blank sheet, the kind of open possibility that the stage in a project where sit down with clients and we help shape What's your vision? What are you trying to do? What do you want? And understanding that, those conversations, before there's any design, it's conversations like this one, where you get a little bit of an opportunity to get inside somebody's head and say, how can I help you translate your vision into something real? To me, that's the really fun part. I, I love the front end and the design part of it. The, the second part is walking through when the thing's finished. There's that moment for an architect where you walk through and you can see it. It's got enough meat on the bones. It's got enough done. You see your mistakes, but you also see your wins. It's that moment where you say, this is a good piece of work. I think that would be the biggest rush. The privilege of being an architect is that. You get to dream up something. And then through a lot of work, and it's, listen, it takes a village. It is part of the reason for joining Dialogue. 
don't let anybody tell you that there's a sketch on the back of a napkin and that's the drop of brilliance. It's hard work, but walking through it and saying, yeah, people are going to do good things here. They're going to learn great things or create good things. I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor, but I think that being able to create places where people who do invent technology and do improve people's lives, I mean, that's what keeps me going. We'd like to take a moment to remind our listeners the NGB Ideas podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. Taking place on the first Monday in October, NGBI brings together innovators, disruptors, and industry leaders from coast to coast in Canada's life sciences sector. For more information, go to nextgreatbigideas.com. What is the greatest lesson that you've had to date in your career? Along the way, there's been lots of humbling lessons. There's some phrases, everything that I needed in life I learned in kindergarten. To some extent, everything I learned in life that I needed, I learned in the hockey dressing room about teamwork. You don't do things alone. We commune in society for a reason. Architecture, design, construction, that act of faith of creating something that takes years in the making to do, takes a team. And there's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of liabilities and reputation. and It's all consequential for everybody involved. If there's a common purpose and we keep talking to each other about that, we get to achieve great things together. Nobody does it by themselves. And if they do, they're lying to themselves or somebody else. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? I don't know. First, it's all-consuming. Actually, if I wasn't doing this, I probably would be doing real estate development where the creative process is still the same. Seeing value where there isn't, and then figuring out how to bring value to life in some way. So you'd be at the same table, just at a different seat. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a great way of putting it. See what it's like on the other side of the table. For those who may be listening to our conversation, what advice would you give to those scaling life sciences startups from your perspective? We've had the privilege of working with a bunch of groups over the years that have scaled from nothing to something. And what always amazes me is the tenacity and the, the MacGyverism of those folks. Building a business is really tough. The journey we had with NXL is analogous to that. Trying to build a business and navigate things with a relatively limited set of resources. The advice would be hold out as long as you can, as long as it makes sense, but also know when to roll in or connect up with others that our journey from NXL into Dialogue, one of the partners here said to me, the only regret I have about this whole thing was that it didn't happen 10 years earlier. And maybe 10 years earlier, I wouldn't have been ready. But I think coming in here, I realized that the synergy was really extraordinary. And so I would say to those that are starting up, build, push, connive, beg, borrow, and steal what you need. Keep at it. But in a point, recognize when it's going to make sense to hook your wagon to a faster horse, because you can develop so much better results through that synergy, through the teamwork. From what I've learned along the way, it really seems to have been a good choice. You were one of the first people I met in my journey into the life sciences sector over the last decade. Okay. You explained to me that planning for life sciences requirements 
is unlike planning for office requirements because office requirements start their plan from the reception. But life sciences requirements start their planning from the loading dock. Why is that? Life sciences deals with a lot of chemical solvents, equipment that has to find its way to the right place safely. You can't fit it through narrow corridors. You can't get it upstairs. Like It's not like that Friends episode where they're trying to move the couch up and they can keep flipping it around. These pieces of equipment are multi-million dollar pieces of equipment. Sometimes you actually have to figure out how they get in the wall of the building. You have to design a demountable portion of the building to be able to move something in. And certainly with the robust mechanical systems that feed these higher performance buildings, you also have to think about the life cycle of that equipment and how you get it out when it is at the end and bring in a new piece. These buildings are designed inside out and backwards. They're not designed from what it looks like from the outside. They're designed from the loading dock in and up. But at the end of the day, you want to get to the right design and mass and material for the building. But you got to make sure that there's high enough floor height to fit the ductwork in and fit the fume hoods in. And for those reasons, the equipment and the materials that people work with are unforgiving. And labs can be unsafe places. They handle a lot of nasty stops. Designing for safety first and how keep the dangerous and flammable explosive, all that sort of stuff in the right safe facilities and keep them apart from people who are working in the offices. They're not trained to work in labs. It's not something that a space planner can say, sure, I can do that. The expertise just isn't there. There are a lot of obstacles in designing proper environments or finding proper environments for labs. Do you see any obstacles on the horizon of your industry at the moment? I think we're at a really interesting time here in Canada specifically, because a lot of those obstacles are falling or giving away, meaning that there is now a fairly robust or a good number of real estate developers who are all looking at investing in the right kinds of buildings to support this industry. So there's now more and more availability of lab space planned to be coming on the market. Which means that the folks we talked about a few minutes ago, the life science startups, now have some upward mobility and a place to go. For 20 years, in at least in our region, the GTA, the only game of town has been Mars, which has been phenomenal. That Discovery District has propagated that industry. There's been nowhere for the more mature companies to go. There's been no space for the startups to move into. That obstacle, I think, is falling away. And over the next five years, there'll be a lot of space coming online, which means that the companies that are maturing and growing will have place and space to go. And that'll then decant space for new startups to come up. That's really exciting. In Canada, we're way better at doing more with less. I don't know if it's a talent or a necessity based on our current industry situation with the lack of facilities. You mentioned that it is changing. I think we've still got a two-year gap to bridge. There are projects announcing, you know, in, in Hamilton at Master Innovation Park and 
Mississauga in the junction area of downtown Toronto, which is a project you're involved with. Can you talk about that? That's just coming online. It's interesting. We're in the midst of designing it at the same time the owners are going out to the marketplace and writing deals with potential tenants because the market is so hungry for this kind of space because it doesn't exist. The project's called 77 Wade and it's about 140-odd thousand square feet of rentable space, seven stories, 20,000-foot floor plate. And it's going to be the first purpose-built lab-specific building in the GTA since Mars. And there are others that are going to be coming online, just they're a little later in the process. I think it bodes well for a knowledge-based industry. We're also losing our technical industry. And COVID really taught us that we have lost a lot of ground locally for our own internal supply of medicines and even PPE, gloves and masks and those things. COVID exposed the fact that none of that is manufactured here anymore. And that's changing. Folks out there saying, we have to fix that because when, not if, but when the next pandemic hits and the next illness hits, we've got 30 million people here that need to be looked after. And we can't wait in line behind the 330 million people to the south. Yeah, we've got some infrastructure we've got to deliver before we are in the position that you're referring to. What do you see as the next great big ideas on your horizon? As I talk to you today on this podcast, I'm in a bit of a quiet room in Dialog's offices. I'm sitting here. The air supply in this room is not what it should be. And this is a well-designed workplace. The next great big idea is that clean air is as much a human right as clean water. And the problem is you can see when water is dirty. You can't see when air is dirty. There's a whole bunch of people who got COVID from somebody else by being in a room and breathing the air that they breathed out. And if you really think about it, the idea of breathing the air in that has been in somebody else's body not too long ago, you start to think about it. It's pretty unpalatable. I think we've done ourselves a disservice over the last 150 years of creating beautiful buildings, great spaces, but not paying nearly enough attention to directional airflow. Mother Nature uses breezes to move things for a reason. Our buildings are far too passive that way. Developers and real estate owners who own these buildings are looking at how to reinvigorate them for post-pandemic use. There's going to be a lot more attention paid to air systems. And the challenge is that the conventional wisdom about how that gets done means very expensive retrofits. I think we need to look at smarter more agile, more personal airspace to keep people healthy and clean. Just look what's going on at daycares and in schools with kids. We keep sending them out and they keep coming home sick because they're in classrooms that are not well ventilated at all. That's something you got to fix, but it's not easy and it's not straightforward. I think one of the exciting things for me being in a multidisciplinary firm like Dialogue is that I sit next to 
mechanical, electrical, and structural engineers, and we think about how to solve these problems together as opposed to completely separate businesses. And I know that may not sound so scintillating, maybe to some of the listeners here. Clean air, wouldn't that be a refreshing idea? No pun intended. Agree 100%. This has been fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today. Thanks so much for having me. That was Jay Levine, partner and life sciences practice lead at Dialogue Design. This podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit that's taking place this October in Hamilton, Ontario. For details on this in-person event, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. The NGB Ideas podcast is brought to you by LabOccupier.com, and this week's episode was researched and produced by Tisha Prasad. If you'd like to follow me on social media, I am at LabOccupier, and you can reach me by email at jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. Thank you for joining us this week. If you like our podcast, please subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We appreciate your feedback and welcome suggestions on future guests. We also encourage you to share your thoughts about us on social media with the hashtag NGBIdeas. Thanks again for listening.